Good morning. morning. Welcome. Good to see you. Uh, We are on week number three, and this should be the last week of our series entitled Belittled Women, uh, dealing with some difficult texts in the scriptures and making a strong case, I hope, for women in ministry, women in leadership, women in equality with men. Um, I have really enjoyed this. I've loved, you know, last week diving into 1 Timothy 2, a really difficult passage. And today we'll have another difficult passage in Paul. Uh, We've got uh, 1 Corinthians 14, which we'll deal with quite briefly. And then we're going to go way back to the start and pitch the tent in Genesis for the rest of today. So let me read 1 Corinthians 14. It's another one of those verses in Paul, like 1 Timothy 2, where it seems to fly in the face of what Paul says elsewhere and what Jesus says elsewhere and the general attitude of the New Testament towards women. So let's read it. This is just verses 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. (laughs) Ah, Yeah. So how many of you women have behaved disgracefully already since you you came in the door and had a chat with somebody over your, your cup of tea? Seems fairly straightforward, but the problem is this verse or these verses seem to flatly contradict what we see elsewhere, what we saw in the first part of the series when we looked at the New Testament, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, and saw women in the New Testament fulfilling all of those roles, and yet here they're being commanded to silence. It also seems to fly in the face of something Paul said just three chapters earlier in the same letter where he says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. And, and what we take from that is Paul assumes that in the church, women will pray and they will prophesy. It's, it's going to be part of the gathering of the church. He expects it and he has a particular code that he has in place there which is culturally relevant to the first century and not to us but the fact that we pull out of this verse is women spoke in church so how is it that he can say in 1 Corinthians 14 that they are to remain silent now this is one of those parts of the New Testament where we can't be cast iron certain about what Paul is saying but we can have a pretty good stab at it and we can be certain about what he's not saying He is not making a universal call to silence women in the church for all time. He cannot possibly be doing that. Otherwise, he's contradicting himself in the same letter. So we're going to just stretch it out a wee bit in 1 Corinthians 14 and let the context be our guide. At the end of the chapter, in the final verse, Paul says everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Note the word or the term orderly. And then a wee bit earlier in verse 33, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Paul is concerned here for 
order in the church because God is a God of order who brought order out of chaos right back at the start of our Old Testament. And he wants, Paul wants things to be done in the church in an orderly manner. He is very concerned about how the watching world perceives the church. And in the same chapter, he, he uses the example of people all speaking in tongues with no interpreter and somebody coming in and thinking, you're all mad. He wants the church to behave in an orderly manner. Rick Watts says that Jesus' reputation sinks or swims depending on how we live. How the outside world will perceive Jesus will be based on how the church behaves. They're unlikely to read the Gospels. Some of them might, but they're unlikely. They will make a conclusion about Jesus based on how the church behaves. And it would appear that the Corinthian church was full of disorder, a bit chaotic, and Paul is giving instructions about how to bring order back to things. And here's an important word that is going to pop up three times towards the end of 1 Corinthians 14. In Greek, it's sagao, and it means to be quiet, to be quiet. And women in this context are not the only ones who are told to be quiet. We have to stretch out, zoom, zoom out a wee bit and look at the whole picture and see what is Paul doing in these verses. In verse 27 and 28, this, this passage runs from about 27 to the end of the chapter. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. That's the first group of people that Paul says, you need to be quiet. People who speak in tongues, there's nothing wrong with that. Paul endorses it, but he will not allow it in the public gathering of the church unless there is someone who can interpret that people can be edified by what is said. And he says, you know, basically that's causing disorder. If everybody's speaking in tongues, it creates a disordered atmosphere in the church. Paul doesn't want it. And he says, if there's no interpreter, be quiet. Sigao in Greek. That's the first group of people. You be quiet. I want order in the church. And then there's a second group of people, the prophets. Just the next couple of verses, two or three prophets should speak. The others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. And our Greek word therefore should stop is sigao, be quiet. And a second group of people now are being told by Paul to be quiet in the gathered church. And they are prophets. Now we know from the rest of the chapter that he heartily endorses prophecy and he wants it to take place in the church. But he wants it to be orderly. So he doesn't want a scenario where someone is standing up speaking and they take ages and they're long-winded and they go on and on and on. Nor does he want a scenario where people are standing up and interrupting each other. He wants order. So that's the second group of people that he says, you need to be quiet. And then the third group of people are these women. Women should remain silent in the churches. Now, I don't know that the word silent is, is the best word that the NIV translators have used here. For me, silence, maybe it's just for me, silence is the absence of noise. And quiet is not just the same as complete silence. You can be standing outside in the garden and you can think it's really quiet, but when you put your mind to it, there's birds singing and there's, there's bits and pieces going on. It's not silent. So I think silence is, is a slightly strong word to be using here. 
what the, it's our word again, our Greek word, sigao, be quiet. And this time it's regarding these women who are speaking in the church. And I think in the context of the passage, we've got our tongue speakers and our prophets. I don't think Paul is saying that women are banned from speaking. I think he's saying they are not to speak in a way that causes disorder in the church, in a way that causes confusion and disruption. He hints towards it a wee bit in verse 35. He says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. So we get a bit of a picture of what was going on in church was the women were asking their husbands questions, maybe during the message, and creating disruption. Remember what I said last week, women were not educated in this culture. They left their father's house at age 14 and they got married. The man they married would have been about 30, would have been well-educated and well-traveled. Just a gulf between them. And while he's sitting in church listening to the message, she, because culture has not allowed her to get an education, would be probably asking him questions. We elbow now and again, what does that mean? What's going on? What did he just say? And in fact, one writer, a guy called Ken Bailey, who's really good at sort of painting the first century picture of what life was like, said that the women and the men may have sat separately. The difference in education probably meant the men understood a more fluent or had a better vocabulary and dialect even than the women. And the women didn't know what was going on a lot of the time. And either they got bored and talked among themselves or they asked questions. Like watching maybe a film with a complex plot with a child who either keeps asking you what's going on or just gets fed up and starts faffing about doing other things. That's what it was like in church. And, and regardless of what, what is exactly going on, because we don't know, but Paul is saying to them, be quiet. Do not cause disruption in the gathered church. His, his issue is order. And it says in, in verse 20 that they are to be in submission. And then men, and one of the things that we're trying to dismantle here over these three weeks is, is men who make a case for women being silent and submitting to them. Paul doesn't, you know, we, people will jump from here to, to Ephesians 5, but Paul does not say anything about, about men, about being in submission to men here. He just says the women are they're not allowed to speak. They must be in submission. He doesn't say exactly what they must be in submission to. And then he says, as the law says. And you're like, what law? For there's nothing in the Old Testament about that. He may have been referring to Roman law and the culture that they were living in. We just don't know. But what we do know is that he definitely is not silencing women for all time in the church. It is culturally confined to this particular situation. And the principle that we can draw from it is that there should not be disruption and disorder in the gathered assembly of God's people. And this is all because it's reflecting the character of God, as I said, in Genesis 1. So Paul is calling for order. Three groups of people were creating disorder. People were speaking in tongues with no interpreter. Be quiet. People were prophesying, taking too long about it or interrupting one another. Be quiet. And women, in this context in particular, were interrupting to ask questions. And Paul says, be quiet. So that is the, the 1 Corinthians 14 passage as, as I see it and as I've worked on it this last week in particular. Let's now jump to Genesis. 
and we're going to spend the rest of the time this morning in, in the first couple of chapters in Genesis, again with the intention of trying to understand God's intent in creating male and female and how they relate to each other and how people can take verses and passages out of context to try to pr- push a particular agenda. Chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, verse 26, some older or some, you know, frankly, translations of the Bible that might be trying to subtly push uh, an agenda might say at the, at the start of verse 26, let us make man. And that's a wee bit confusing. Now, we may use the term man in the same way, but I think it's clearer to say mankind, hum- humanity, <laughs> men and women, all human beings is what is being meant here at the start of verse 26, not just masculine men. That is not what mankind refers to. We use the term ourselves. We talk about mankind and we are referring to all of humanity. And that's what the scriptures here are referring to. And note the the language that God uses. Let us make mankind in our image. God himself is communal, is a community, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And he is creating a community of people, mankind, plural, in his image to reflect that that community and that oneness. It it does not say in the beginning God created a guy, a man, a male, a masculine, that that's where he started. It says he made mankind, humanity in his image. And verse 26, just to to show you the rest of the verse, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so, so that they may rule. Now, one of the words you will hear a lot in discussions of men and women in marriage and in the church is to do with authority. And people will make arguments about men having authority. This is the only place in Genesis 1 and 2 where authority is mentioned. And it is mankind together, all mankind having authority over the rest of creation. Male and female together ruling over God's creation. It is not man ruling over woman. And the language of they may rule, just as an aside, that means about caring for creation. In the the ancient world, kings and queens were seen as being gardeners and shepherds of the ancient world. And dominion is not to subdue, it's not to strip mine the earth and get every resource we can out of it. It is to care for it. Greta Thunberg annoys me a wee bit. (laughs) But... I think maybe she annoys me. She annoys me because she's just that sort of wee stroppy thing about her. But maybe she annoys me because she convicts me. Because it should be Christians who are leading the charge in terms of caring for the earth. We should be the ones who are making all the fuss about it. 
God gave us this, you know, first command in Genesis to rule, to have dominion, to care for the planet, to care for creation. We are immensely powerful creatures. We should be caring for the environment around us instead of having the attitude, ah, well, it's all going to burn, so who cares anyway? This is the only place where authority is mentioned and there is not a hint of it only applying to males or men. Into Genesis 2, and we have a second creation story in Genesis 2. And some people think that this is a problem, that Genesis 1 presents the creation story one way and Genesis 2 presents it from a slightly different angle. But we've got four Gospels because you can't, you can't tell the story of Jesus in one Gospel. And you can't tell the story of creation and what it means to be human in just one chapter or one story. It has, it's coming from multiple angles. So Genesis 2 gives us another different angle on creation. And we read in verse 7, The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. Now, Hebrew time. Dust man. <laughs> what the Americans call the, the, the bin man, but that's just a coincidence. Dust and man. The Hebrew word for dust, for the earth, for the ground beneath your feet, is Adama. And the Hebrew word for man is Adam, which then became, obviously, Adam. So what we've got here is this, this, you know, when God created man from the dust, he created him from the earth, the Adama. He created them from the earth. The, the, you would talk about when you're gardening or, or moving big heaps of soil, moving, moving earth. That's, that's what he means, of the earth. And the man then, the best way to translate that word Adam is the earth one. Made from the earth, the material on the ground. God took some earth and he made the earth one. You could call him the earthling, but then you're maybe getting into sort of science fiction a little bit. The earth, and from the earth, we get the earth one. At this point, and this might sort of ring your bell a wee bit, and I won't go too far with it, but at this point, don't be going too far with thinking that this is masculine. Because there's no indication that it is. It's a masculine word. But all that the scripture is saying here is that God took some earth, and from the earth, he made one. And I'd love to know what it looked like. <laughs> I really would. And in fact, I was thinking about this out loud in the kitchen yesterday and Linda told me, no, don't. Keep those thoughts to yourself. <laughs> Church does not need to know your ponderings as to what this earth one actually looked like. You'll hear people now and again telling a wee riddle about, you know, if you found somebody with no belly button, how would you know who it is? And then the answer would be, well, it's either Adam or Eve because... They didn't need an umbilical cord, so they've no belly button. But I'm not thinking about the belly button. I'm thinking about other things. And I'm wondering what on earth uh, was this earth one actually like? Whenever gender is, is brought into the picture, different words are used to denote male and female. And anyway, this, this earth one is, is formed, whatever it he looked like. And the Lord God said, it's not good for the earth one, the Adam from the Adama, to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And what does God do next? He brings all the animals to, to walk by the Adam and sees if any of them are suitable for him. You know, a sparrow, a bear maybe. No, none of them are suitable. He names them, but no suitable helper was found. 
And the act of naming all these different creatures just allows the Adam, the earth one, to realize I'm all alone. I don't have a companion. I don't have a helper who is suitable for me. And God then needs to make a helper for him. Now, this word helper is interesting. Helper. What, is a, what comes into mind when you think helper? Because you'll, you'll get people who take the old King James version of this and men will refer to their wives as their help meet. <laughs> their help meet. Their helper. Imagine, girls, you young ladies, if, if your white knight got down on one knee and opened a box with a sparkling diamond in it and said to you, will you be my helper? <laughs> what would your response be? Would you be thrilled about potentially being his helper for the rest of his life? Uh, like a, a primary one child gets to be helper. That means they get to carry a document from the teacher to the school office. They are the helper. They don't get to teach the lesson. Right? They, get to, they get to help. The word is, a, is, is, a, is a probably not a helpful word, this word helper. It makes you think of a weakling of lesser value who does the chores for somebody else. That's, that's what is connoted by this word helper. And the Greek, or sorry, the Hebrew word is, and I warned you at the start of this series that just, it would be more teach than preach. So there has been a lot of words, but um, this is intentional. Some of you are going to hear this one, you'll think, ah, I know where that is. Ezer, the Hebrew word ezer. Anybody heard ezer as part of another word? Who are you thinking of? Uh, you're thinking of Scrooge, and you're on the right lines. It is, it is Ebenezer. Samuel took a stone, bang on, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. The interesting thing about this word, this word Ezer for helper is that it's used 19 times in the Old Testament. 15 of them are used of God. Is God a weakling who does the chores for other people? I think not. Let the context and let the scripture interpret what the word actually means. In every single case that this word ezer is used, it is the offering of help and assistance by one who has strength. It is not a weakling or a subordinate to which you pass off some of your tasks. Here's another verse that'll make it even clearer. We all love this psalm. It's up in the kitchen. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my easer come from? My easer comes from the Lord. Okay. Just because someone is a helper does not mean they are inferior. So to take this, this verse in, in Genesis chapter 2 and say that it means that women are subordinate to men, that the man is the leader and has the authority and the woman is just someone who comes alongside to help him out, that is a complete misreading of what the scripture says. It always refers to someone who is coming with strength. God helps Israel. Joshua helps the Gibeonites. It is when someone is lacking, it's quite the opposite. It's when someone is lacking strength and they need someone alongside them to do that. All you wives are going to quote that this afternoon at some stage to your husband. It does not mean secondary. And then also it says suitable helper. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Again, in the older versions, it would say no help was found meet for him or fit for him. 
And the word there for, for suitable is a word that, that means in correspondence with. Because you see, all, all of these animals were made and brought to Adam, but none of them corresponded to, to the Adam. None of them were, were like him or were similar to him. But now God is going to make a helper who will come with strength and correspond to him. Not be weaker than him, not be different, well, will be different from him, but not different in terms of value, but will come alongside him a strong helper equal to the man. Woman was not intended to be man's helper. She was instead to be his partner. And they are made equal. The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. Just, oh, sounds good, doesn't it already? And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. To the man. And now the earth one has been divided. The Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the rabbis had a lovely saying. The first time I heard this was, was reading an old sermon by Charles Spurgeon 20 odd years ago. The rabbis would say, God did not take her from the Adam's head that she would rule over him or from his feet that he might walk all over her, but from his side that they might stand together. I love that. I love that. Equal. And people will argue from this verse and this, this passage of, about hierarchy, about first being best, and second being less. In other words, the, the Adam, they will say that the, the man, the masculine, the male came first and is more important because he came first. And then the woman, the female came second and therefore is of lesser importance. But I know someone who kept teaching that the last would be first and kept on flipping over the ideas that culture had regarding importance being linked to order. Genesis does not attach significance to the order of male then female. Otherwise, if we take that thinking, as I said last week, if we take that thinking into Genesis 1, the weeds out in the courtyard are more important than you are because they were made first. The fly that lands on your meal on a hot summer day, you should actually sit back and allow that fly to eat because that fly is more important than you because the animals were created first. So we just can't. It's ludicrous to, to argue, argue for, for priority from that which came first. Otherwise, John the Baptist is greater than Jesus. Otherwise, Mary Magdalene should have led the apostles rather than Peter because she saw the resurrected Jesus first. In fact, God frequently overlooks the first and chooses the weaker. For example, King David, the youngest of, of the eight brothers. But one of the things that is stressed in the, in the male-female thing for, for God is that he says in, in 18, which I don't have at the minute, but at verse 18, it is not good for the man, the Adam, to be alone. So the first thing that God says is not good. Whereas at the end of chapter 1 in the other creation account, after making male and female, he says very good. <laughs> not good and very good, the two together. What about naming? Some people, again, will... As, as, you know, keep the context here, we're trying to dismantle some of the cases that men make in the church and in society in general for, for claiming to have authority and, and priority over women. What about naming? 
People will say the fact that, that Adam named or the man named the woman means that he has authority over her. I've read this for years, this idea that, that to name something indicates you have authority over it. It doesn't mean that. Otherwise, Hagar, the Egyptian slave in Genesis 16:3, has authority over God because she names him. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, El-Rohi. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. We can't make the argument that to name something gives you authority over it. Names are given not as a sign of authority, but to signify the purpose of something, to signify its character, such as God changing Abram to Abraham, Simon being changed by Jesus to Peter, Jesus himself. Joseph was told, you shall call his name Jesus. Does that mean Joseph has authority over Jesus? (laughs) I think not. What it means that you shall call his name Jesus because it will signify his character that he will save his people from their sins. To name something is to declare its character and its significance. It's also to create a memorial of an event such as Ebenezer. I call this place Ebenezer because previous or hitherto God has helped us. When Adam names Eve, it's not like he's naming the animals because the first thing he recognizes is that she's not like them, she is like him. God puts him to sleep. Um, Where are we? Oh, we've lost her. Yeah, God puts him to sleep, creates the woman from his side, and look at what he says. He's about to name her woman, but before he does that, he is absolutely emphatic about the fact that she's the same as him. All of the animals... Oh, it's gone again. There it is. The Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals. That's something I never really paid much heed to before. God did not make the woman from the earth because he did not want the Adam to look upon her and think she's just the same as the animals. Instead of making the woman from the earth, he makes her from the man. He takes the rib or part of the man, the Adam's side, and he makes the woman again to indicate that she is equal in substance. She's different from everything else that has been brought to him. Dogs and cats and horses and no matter what, she is different from them. God brings her to the man and he is overwhelmed. And he says, at last, this is, this is a quote, this is Katia Adams, at last, after all of that searching, here she is, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, absolute equality of essence and substance and authority and worth, she shall be called woman. And he didn't name her because he had authority over her. It is his way of saying she is of the same substance as me. Man in Hebrew is ish. Woman is isha. It is overwhelmingly emphatic there's not much more that the adam the man could have done to emphasize the fact that we are equal (laughs) made of the same stuff standing side by side names exactly the same apart from putting a feminine ending on he is emphatic about their sameness there is nothing here about authority unless you're trying to shoehorn it in to the verse with an agenda 
And God in chapter 1 talked about, the, about humankind having authority over all the animals and the livestock and the birds and the fish. And the, and, and the things that creep along the ground. Even the things that creep along the ground. Ladies, those mice, you have authority over them. All right? You don't need to, to, to call for someone else. God says, here's all the stuff you have authority over. I think if man had authority over a woman, God probably would have made that quite clear. If he's going to make it clear that you have authority over the spiders, then I think he would have made it clear if we have authority male over female. Finally, for Genesis, Genesis 3. Oh, Genesis 2. Just Again, when you think, when you, when you think in the privacy of your own mind and your own home and not in front of the church about the Adam and what, what it was like, what he was like, the Adam, and then God brings, brings him apart into two, and then the two come together again to form one flesh. It's just class. Genesis 3. Here's one verse just from Genesis 3 that uh, can be used by some people to argue for male authority. It is quite shocking that they do use this verse, but they do. The fall of humanity has taken place. A serpent has shown up. And by the way, a serpent, Genesis was written sometime after the Exodus took place. And it was a way, it was, it, you know, who is this God who has come and redeemed us from Egypt? Genesis was then, was written by Moses. Traditionally, people believe Genesis was written by Moses. And one of the reasons that the Satan is then represented by a serpent is because Pharaoh in Egypt had a serpent in his headdress, a cobra. And, and this signified everything that was evil and oppressive to, to God's people. But anyway, this serpent has come in the garden. And caused a bit of havoc. And in Genesis 3, humanity has, fall, has fallen and, and relationships have been distorted and everything has gone pear-shaped. And it is interesting that in the New Testament, when Jesus is asked about marriage by the Pharisees, he goes back and he quotes Genesis 1 about male and female both being made in the image of God. He quotes Genesis 2 about a man leaving his father and mother and being united to his wife as one flesh. He does not quote Genesis 3. Jesus doesn't go here to get his structure for marriage, and nor should we. This is a bitterly disputed verse. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is after the fall. This is in dysfunction and in the effects of sin. And those who believe that women were originally made to be under the authority of men will simply say that this verse shows that that's just being distorted slightly and the women are now trying to grasp at the authority that the man has over her. And in fact, one very common translation, a very famous translation of the Bible, changed this verse in 2016. And instead of it saying, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, it became your desire will be contrary to your husband, which is rather different, but he will rule over you. And that lower translation on the screen, your desire will be contrary to your husband, for, for my money, that starts to put an awful lot of, of the emphasis on women as being the, the baddies in the whole story. The ones who are grasping at the authority that God has given to the man. And these Pesky, aggressive women keep on trying to grasp at it, and that's the problem through all of history. 
That's a dangerous way to render that verse, I think. And the fear is then that if we use that rendering of the verse, men could, could then justify aggressive, manipulative control and dominance over women because that's the way it should be in their eyes. And these women, because of sin, are trying to grasp at male authority. So we better keep a firm hand on them. Dangerous stuff. One of the best writers on this whole topic that I've, that I've read in, in recent months is Lucy Pepiat, who is the principal of Westminster Theological College, I think it's called. And she's brilliant. Like She really is. She's an outstanding, not just writer and teacher, but communicator. She's fabulous. And I want to read a, a lengthy quote here. It's, it's important. If our understanding of Genesis 1 to 2 is correct, then Genesis 3 is a tragedy of a different order. Not just that, that God's original order of male authority and female under authority is being twisted a wee bit, as some people would say. No, she says this is a tragedy of a different order from that. The first relationship of mutual support and strength equality and sharing, sameness and difference in one's closest companion has become a horribly disordered and emotionally unequal, par-based, unloving relationship. She goes on to say, the woman will desire her husband, but he will dominate her. This is a, tr a chilling transition from what was described in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, all of that equality, all of that sameness, all of that bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, woman made out of man, same as me, all of that now has been horribly, horrendously twisted into male dominance by sin. And it is staggering that men in the church will quote that verse in Genesis 3.16 and say, there you go. Men are meant to dominate and men are meant to rule. That is phenomenal. <laughs> and note as well in Genesis 3, humanity does not get cursed. The serpent gets cursed. Humanity faces the consequences of their sin. But it's the serpent who is cursed. Pepeat goes on to say, and again I think this is really important, I want to read all of it. Genesis 3.16, this, this verse about female desire for her husband and a husband dominating or ruling over a woman. Genesis 3.16 is a sign of both female and male disorder and tragedy. A woman in her brokenness, now you listen to this and you will hear our society. A woman in her brokenness and vulnerability turns to a man rather than to God to meet her needs. And instead of kindness and compassion, she encounters his broken and disordered need to dominate her. A tragedy played out with sickening regularity throughout history. Ever seen a woman who keeps getting tangled up with losers over and over and over again. Keeps going back to the same profile of a man. The loser profile. And they mistreat her again and again and again. That's what this is talking about. A woman turning to men instead of God to meet her needs and a man dominating her. And this tragedy plays out over and over and over again. We need to be careful that the teaching in the church, 
about men and women in the church does not filter out into society and allow this to continue. The church has got to be countercultural. The church has got to be scriptural and the church has got to model men and women together both in marriage and in the community of the church and in ministry and leadership that will show culture what God's way actually is. The context of Genesis 3 is is disobedience and sin. It is not where we go to get our rules for the male-female relationship. Quite the opposite. And as we saw last week with, with a version or several verses in 1 Timothy 2 that are completely inverted in the hands of some people to mean something that they do not mean at all, that Paul could not have meant. Here again, this is not what marriage or male-female relationships should be like. And I have heard it quoted in in defense of men ruling over women. And he's like, no, not Genesis 3. <laughs> Maybe Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We'll go there and we'll get lots of good things there, but we're not going to let the serpent's distortion of humanity become our benchmark. In conclusion, we don't live in Genesis 3, and we don't live anywhere else in the Old Testament. We don't even live in the Gospels. We live in the age of the Spirit. And to sum up, you know, everything from the past three weeks, in Acts chapter 2, you have the one and only requirement for women in ministry, or men in ministry. In the last days, God says, this is Peter quoting Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. If the Holy Spirit gifts someone for ministry, one would need to be very, very foolish to stand in front of them and say, no, very foolish. And there are some really, really loud voices in our country and particularly as well in North America and lots of books written and lots of lectures given with the, with the aim of silencing women. And some of them... Some of them I disagree with, but at least they do it with a wee bit of, I don't want to say class, but respect. Yeah, some, some people will, will present that point of view in, in, a, in a manner that is sort of respectful. Some of them are just disgusting in the way they speak about women. I, I listened to a guy speaking about a, a lady who is, who's becoming quite a famous preacher in America and, and the way he derided her at his conference in front of a room full of men was just disgusting. Disgusting. I don't want to stand before God and say 50% of the people who could have ministered, who could have shared your word, who could have preached, who could have led, who, whatever it may be, I shut them down, God. Didn't I do well? I shut them down. I shut them up. I got 1 Timothy 2 and I got 1 Corinthians 14. I got Genesis 3 and I rammed it at them and I shut them down. 
Remember whenever the, the, the disciples were going to shut some people down in the Gospels? I can't remember exactly where it was. I think it was maybe Luke 8 or 9, maybe Luke 9. And, and they, they, they see some people doing, doing some Jesus stuff and they're like, Jesus, these guys aren't part of our team. Like we need to shut down. We need to call down fire from heaven on those guys. And she's like, no. Jesus says, no, 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 no. He says, if they're, if they're, if they're not against you, they're with you. And to shut people down who the Spirit has gifted is an exceptionally foolish and dangerous thing to do. This has been a hard three weeks in terms of just the, the depth of the content. You've listened well. And I really hope, I want to just pray now, I really hope that, that lots of people have benefited. I hope men with daughters have benefited. I hope boys with sisters have benefited. I hope the girls and the women have learned that, that God gifts them and values them exactly equally with the men. And there is a part for them to play that is not just restricted to menial tasks. But if the Holy Spirit gifts you, then go for it. That is in the New Testament church, the only requirement for ministry. Did the Holy Spirit gift you to do it? Then do it. <laughs> And church, get behind those. Recognize gifting and get behind those who are showing it. And those of you who maybe sit and think, there are things I'd like to do. Things I'd like to, to share on a, on a Sunday morning. Things I'd like to start. Things I'd like to lead. And a level of involvement I'd like to have. But I feel because of the tradition of what I've been taught or what I've heard in other places or I'm confused about these passages. I'd say go for it. All right, You're safe here. You're safe here. Don't suppress your ministry. Don't bury your talent in the ground because of some difficult passages that hopefully now we've shone a bit more light on.